We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. All right, if you are ages seven and under, you can go to the back of the room to be dismissed to Children's Church. Somebody meeting them back there? Yep. Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so Pastor Mike is in Burundi. They're getting close to wrapping up their trip. I don't know if you've been following it on Facebook, um, but there's been some really good God-given experiences that they've had and have been blessed with in meeting with the kids at camp, some just raw, spirit-driven moments. Um, also, as they've been, you know, John Piper once had his Apple Watch go off during the sermon, so now I feel like I'm in good company. I'm just going to take it off and put it down. Um, so, so they've been in Burundi, and they've, you know, they started out meeting with some campers and talking with them uh, about our Lord and how to live the Christian life, uh, and just some good, honest conversations. Addie's been connecting really well uh, with the girls over there, and they're now in the phase of the trip uh, where they're meeting with pastors and exploring how the gathering and how the city movement, the church and the YMCA, uh, movement that we're a part of uh, could potentially partner in the country of Burundi uh, to help train pastors and plant some wide churches there. So continue to keep them in their prayers, as we said during the announcement, um, and uh, especially as they um, wrap that up at this point and uh, getting close to and, and coming back. So we look forward to uh, seeing them next week. For those of you who have been here for any length of time, you know that we do expository sermons, meaning we go through an entire book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, and we lift out of the text what God is saying. And that's the normal rhythm for our church. Uh, we just finished up 1 Samuel here uh, back, I think, in the first week of June. And uh, since the first week of June, we've been in a, a topical series uh, which is a little bit different for us, um, but we occasionally do them. And the topic that we've been in uh, has been learning about the five solas of the Reformation uh, and why they're important. And so, uh, you know, just for a quick refresher, uh, the five solas are sola Christus, which is Christ alone, sola fide, which is faith alone, sola gratia, which is grace alone. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing some of these. Uh, sola Dea Gloria, which is to the glory of God alone, and where we've camped out the last five weeks, or this will be the fifth week, is Sola Scriptura, which is Scripture alone. And so we've been on this journey, and over the last four weeks, we started with a, a poem that Mike delivered uh, to the church. And the, the primary premise of that first week 
uh, in Sola Scriptura was that Scripture trumps tradition, reason, experience, and feelings. It works with them, but it has authority over them. Scripture comes first. And the second week, Mike went into his sermon, and he kind of explained why. Because it's the inspired Word of God. It's inerrant, and it's sufficient for life and faith. And after we, we put the Bible on center stage that week, we went through and we read 1 Corinthians 2.14, which says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And the main point that we were looking at that week was that it takes the Spirit of God to illuminate the Word of God in our hearts and our minds. Without the Spirit of God doing that work, we can know the Bible from front to back and sideways and miss the main point of it. It takes God to illuminate the text for us through His Spirit. And then last week, Josh talked about revelation. So there's two kinds of revelation. He went through Psalm 19 for us. There's general revelation, which means God reveals himself to us through creation and even through ourselves because we're made in the image of God. And we can see him around anytime we go out into creation and we can see him in the people around us and in ourselves. And then he, Josh went into special revelation and special revelation is what we need to be saved. It comes through the Word of God with the help of the Spirit of God. And I heard a quote this week as I was listening to a lecture that said, general revelation tells us enough about God to be condemned. Special revelation tells us what we need to know to be saved. So today... Uh, we're going to talk about this book, the Bible, and this. Sorry about that. The specific topic is the canon. I, I got a couple questions before we dive in. I, I'll start out a little bit easy. Who knows how many books are in this Bible? That's right. How many in the Old Testament? Thirty-nine. How many in the New Testament? That's right. You guys, you guys are good. All right. In one sentence, who can tell me how we got all 66 books in this Bible? I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do it either. I couldn't do it either. They gave me a whole two hours to tell you guys. I'm just kidding. They didn't give me that much time. Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how we got these 66 books how we know that they are God's word and how we're supposed to respond to that knowledge. Okay? So uh, we'll, let's talk about the, the concept of, of canon. And, um, canon, uh, it's not the kind that goes boom. It's not shooting anything at, at, at anybody, even though this is sharper than a two-edged sword. All right, canon is actually a, a Greek word. It comes from a Greek word that's canon, which is a reed. It's, it's a reed 
plant that grows in the Nile River Valley. And they used to, uh, back in that age, they would cut this reed into specific lengths and they would use the reed to measure something. It became a standard by which it measured other things. So the canon is the standard of God. All right, I'm going to uh, um, talk today that, about God's standard for faith and life, uh, the Bible. So let's, let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we, we thank you and praise you that you're a God that wants to be known. Lord, that you reveal yourself to us through creation. You reveal yourself to us through your word. Lord, that you show your grace and mercy by giving us a standard with which to measure our lives and understand that without you and your son, there would be no salvation. This knowledge doesn't come from things we see or things we hear apart from the word of God and your spirit working in our hearts. And Lord, as we go through uh, our time together this morning, I pray, Father, that your spirit would help us to see your son, to see you in your word, to see how you've preserved it, to make sure that it's a record of the things that you've said for not only the past generations or the present, but future, that it stands, Lord, true, inerrant, Lord, and it can't be dismissed. There's no power on earth. There's no power of man, Lord, that can overcome it. There have been kingdoms that have tried through the years. When Rome persecuted the Christians, Lord, they also tried to burn your word and to take it away from the churches. And Lord, you did not allow that. You preserved your word for that so that your message of Jesus and salvation and our ability to glorify you because of it would be preserved. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you for your spirit to be with us during this time. Lord, to help us strengthen our faith, help us strengthen our ability to communicate to, to others your gospel with full confidence that what we're saying is your word and the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the title of today's sermon is God's Standard for Faith and Life. And there's one point that I'm trying to make overall. Mike calls this the timeless truth or the sermon in a sentence. Uh, but the, the main point that we're trying to speak to today is that we can have confidence in the Bible as the measuring stick of faith and life because it's the inherent word of God to work and change us. So uh, we have three points that I'm going to start with, and you guys are probably wondering, 
what this is sitting here. And several people asked me before the service, and my response was, I'll tell you. And uh, I'll keep my word there. I will tell you, but not right now. So, um, but the, the first point I want to talk about is receiving God's word as God's word. As God's word. There's a lot of ways we could have went with this sermon today. Canonicity is a huge topic. There are volumes of, of books that are written on it, thousands of hours or more of, of lectures, and we could have gone several different ways with our time. We could have looked at just a straight history lesson on how we got the Bible. We could have got into apologetics, which is a defense of the Christian faith and, and, and doctrine. Uh, we could have looked at uh, application in, in our lives. Uh, there's just a lot of things that we could have, could have done. But we're going we're gonna to focus on three points uh, today uh, during our time. So the first one is receiving God's word as God's word. And it's a little bit more history and apologetics in this part. And we'll switch gears for parts two and three. So it's going to cover the origin and transmission of the canon, or how the, can how the Bible was passed out. So the first thing I want to say is what didn't happen. All right, there's a lot of forces in the world today that look for a reason not to believe. They go out of their way to find reasons not to believe. And one of the more common objections that we hear to the Bible was that it was a group of people that decided what went in it. It was an emperor in Rome, Constantine. It was politics that decided what went in it. It was the church at the time, some authority outside of the Bible that said, these are the, the 66 books that go in here. And that is not true. What did happen is that this is God's word inherently. The authority that says this is God's word is in this book. It's inherent in the text. What did happen is that God spoke and God's word was recognized as God's word by his people. So excuse me for just a moment. So uh, God speaks to reveal himself to his people. He's done this as far back as we can go into the Bible. Hebrews 1 through, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us, us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Earlier, I thanked God in our prayer that God is a God who wants to be known. And so when we look in the Bible, you look in the Old Testament, I think it's 450 times, 457 times, excuse me, God says, Thus says the Lord. He's constantly speaking in his word. 
And he used primarily in the Old Testament prophets and representatives such as Moses, who's also a prophet, uh, to, to speak for him. And in the New Testament, he used Christ in his apostles. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The Word of God is God speaking to His people. It's not a set of books that some person put together. God spoke and maintained his word. And the scriptures were received by his people as such. There wasn't, um, um, you know, there were councils back in, in, in Rome. A lot of people think the, the council of uh, Nicaea was one that we, uh, 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 that determined the canon of scripture in 325 AD. And that's, that's not true. They didn't even address uh, the canon in that. Um, God's people were receiving it as his word in the New Testament. If you think about yourself in the New Testament church in the era, I want you to just kind of close your eyes and, and think about sitting in probably a house or some uh, small uh, public place because there was persecution at the during the early second century, late first century, you're sitting in this house, and this letter has arrived during the week, and it's the Lord's Day, and you have a decision to read this letter because this did not exist the way that we have it today. It wasn't printed. The Bible did not exist as it does today, and you have this letter come in. And somebody starts to read it. How do you know that what you're hearing is God's word? It's the first time you've heard this letter. It just got to you. How do you know that what you're hearing is, is God's word? How can you tell truth from fiction. What discernment enables you to do that? When God's people heard him speak in the Old Testament, it said Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered him with one voice and said, all the, Lord, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they all said, all, the Lord has all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. They were told that those were the words of God, and they just received them. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel 
who had Jeremiah not too long before him, had already accepted the words of Jeremiah as being the words of the Lord. And in the New Testament church, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You're sitting in that church, in that house, in that public place somewhere, and you get this letter. What enables you to respond to receive something not as the words of men, but as the words of God? Could you do that if I walked up here and started reading a letter? And I thought about writing one, but... Um, to see, but if I walked up here and started reading a letter from this pulpit, could you discern whether it was a word from the Lord or not? If we were, you know, 2,000, 2000 years ago, roughly. So we're going to answer that question as we go through here, but I want you to keep thinking about it because it's not something that we think about every day. We take this for granted. So, you know, we ask the question, what books were recognized by the early church fathers as God's word? And Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, uh, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, said, when considering whether a text belongs in the canon of Scripture, what matters most is not the usefulness of the text, but the source and the purpose and so let's talk through that a little bit. We'll start with the Old Testament. Um, when Jews were living between the Old and the New Testament period, um, they pretty much had their books of the Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, they pretty much had those set. The canon was what they called closed, meaning they weren't adding any more books to it. And... When they closed the canon during that time, and um, you know they they had uh, twenty four books, we have thirty nine, right? So you say, well, that's different from what we've got. It's, it's actually it's not. Um, they organized their book a little differently than the way we see uh, the Old Testament in our Bible. They put it in three sections. They put it in the Torah or the books of the Law, which were the five books of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy was one section. They put another set of books in the prophets. And I'm not going to try to pronounce the Hebrew name I put in my outline. So, uh, uh, but those were, uh, those were eight books. So now we're at 13. And those included Kings and Samuel, which they didn't divide Kings into first and second Kings like we do. They didn't divide Samuel into first and second Samuel like we do. And they also had uh, what they call the Book of the Twelve, which is basically the minor prophets. So they just kind of consolidate all those into one book. And then the last section were the writings. And there were 11 books there. They included Psalms, Proverbs, 
Interestingly enough, they didn't put Daniel. They didn't put Daniel in the prophet section. They put Daniel in the writing section. Um, and uh, their Bible started with Genesis and ended with Chronicles. And I'm this is important, and I'll I'll get to it uh, here. Um, their canon was closed. Those 39 books were set. Uh, Josephus, who's an ancient Jewish historian, uh, said it was settled by the t time of King Artaxerxes of Persia, sometime between 465 and 423 BC. So well before Jesus um, is here, the Old Testament is set. And when Jesus recognized in the New Testament, the Old Testament canon, he did it in multiple places, but I want you to pay specific attention to Matthew 23, 25. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, uh, which, you know, he had some interesting conversations with those guys. And one of the, this one was equally interesting. It said, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. You're probably looking at me going, why did he pick that verse? How does that set the Old Testament canon? And, and I'll explain. So the, the, the Jewish Bible started with Genesis. Who's the first murder victim in the Bible? You guys get this one? Abel. The Jewish Bible ended that Jesus recognized and used ended with Chronicles. And the last murder to take place in the Old Testament, near the end of Chronicles, our second Chronicles, uh, is Zechariah. And what that tells us in that quote from Jesus is that he recognized as Scripture the three-part, 24-book Hebrew uh, Aramaic Bible. And what he was really saying there is that they were going to be responsible from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. And it just so happens in English that Abel begins with an A and Zechariah begins with a Z. So from A to Z, from beginning to end, he was putting this on there. And in that statement, we have confidence that the Lord said the 39 books that we have in our Bible are, in fact, his words. So uh, some of you may be thinking, well, what about the Catholic and the Orthodox Bibles? Those have some additional books, uh, and, and they do. Um, and there are, there are a couple or a few reasons why um, we don't recognize those books as the inspired Word of God. They are recognized as important and useful, but not the inspired Word of God. Uh, these books are called the Apocrypha, um, and the reason we don't is because, for starters, the New Testament authors don't cite or quote from any of them. There's not a single citation in the New Testament of 
the apocryphal books. Uh, most of those books, by the way, occurred between the time when the prophets stopped prophesying and Jesus' birth, that kind of 400-year gap. Uh, the second reason we don't is because the Jewish people never recognized them as Scripture. Never in their history have they been recognized as, as Scripture. Um, and the most important reason is because Jesus didn't recognize them as Scripture. When he said from A to Z, when he talks about the law and the prophets and the writings later in the New Testament, those books are not included in those groupings. It's those 24 books, which equal our 39 books. It's the exact same content, just divided differently. So if somebody gave us a copy of the Old Testament, we could, we could uh, look at that and be um, pretty sure that that's the Word of God. We can be absolutely sure, because our Lord said it is. All right, so what about the New Testament? So now we're getting to that question. You're sitting in a church. Your elder stands up or, or, or someone uh, reading the, the letter stands up and starts reading it, and you've got to respond to it. How do you do that? So the early church did have a few guardrails that they used for recognizing Scripture. So now I, I want to be clear. There wasn't an authority outside of God and his word that declared things to be Scripture. But there were some things that they were looking for. So the first was, was it apostolic? The apostolic just just means, did an apostle or a close companion of the, of the apostle write the letter or the book? Um, closely associated with, was it apostolic? Was, was it from the apostolic period? Can we, can we date it back to the time of the disciples and the eyewitnesses of Jesus? So that was kind of the first thing that they, they looked for. Um, the second thing that they looked for is, was it Catholic? Now, when I say Catholic in this sense, I don't mean the Church of Rome. I mean Catholic as in, was it universally used by the wide majority of New Testament churches? Was it widely accepted and adopted and recognized as scripture. They weren't just looking at it for themselves. They wanted uh, to know how the church as a whole was responding and recognizing it. And the last, the last question they asked, that's not the last, but the last major one here, was, was it orthodox? Not orthodox as in the orthodox church in the east, but did it fit? Was it consistent with the message of the apostles in the rest of Scripture? Was it consistent? And I'll give you an example. 
How many here have heard of the Gospel of Peter? So let's, this, this happened in church history. So the Gospel of Peter was a letter that was sent to a church in Rosas, and it was being read in the church, and it caused some disagreement within the church as to whether it was appropriate to read this. So they wrote a bishop. Uh, his name was Serapion, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Now, the Gospel of Peter, when you look at it, um, there are a few, a few challenges with it. But just to give you a flavor for what's in the Gospel of Peter, our canonical Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we accept as our canon today, those four Gospels, when they depict the resurrection of Christ, they don't actually depict him walking out of the tomb. The Gospel of Peter does. And it's, it's strange. Um, Jesus, when he steps out of the tomb in the Gospel of Peter, his head is as high as the clouds. So he's super tall. However tall the clouds are, when he steps out of the tomb, he's supersized. Following him out of the tomb is a floating cross. Now the Romans, and I'm not doing this to teach you the Gospel of Peter, the, the Romans did not typically bury those that they crucified with the cross. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge, but it was floating out. Not only was it floating out, it was talking. Um, so that, that's kind of, you know, when you look at the Orthodox, that doesn't, that doesn't really fit the test of being consistent with the rest of the canonical Gospels. But there are a few other problems, and one that concerned uh, the bishop most of all. So first, let's start with Peter didn't write it. It was actually written after he and all his companions were well dead. So it claimed to be the gospel of Peter. It claimed to be something that it wasn't. But the biggest problem that the bishop found with it was that it contained a heresy, a heresy that would threaten the faith and the life of those in that church in Rosas. The heresy basically said that Jesus didn't suffer on the cross. And that is wholly inconsistent with the other Gospels. And the danger that it posed to the faith of those there was that Christ was accepting the wrath of God on our behalf. He didn't suffer, would the payment for our sins be accepted? The questions that start to flow from this heresy would challenge a lot of people's faith. And the, and the bishop immediately wrote back, don't read it, I'm on my way. And so he left where the town that he was in and went straight to that church to shepherd and minister to them. 
and to correct the damage that reading that had done. So when we So when the early church was looking at these letters as they came in, they did apply apply some things in order to be able to recognize it and receive it as the the word of God. They were not an, uh, assuming a role of authority, but they were assuming a role of discernment. And when we look at our New Testament that we have today, there's 27 books in the New Testament. And I told you earlier that councils did not say, this is, these are the books of the Bible, and definitively describe them. They recognized them, uh, such as the Council of, of Hippo and, and, and others. Um, they recognized them, but the first time we actually see a list of the 27 books is in a, uh, a letter from uh, a church father called Athanasius of Alexandria and his Easter letter of, of 367 AD. He names it, which is well before the councils uh, that people have in mind actually issued um, uh, their list as well. Um, a couple other things that I wanted to, to, to speak to. One of the arguments that you hear from those that say the Bible is not uh, reliable cite that there's this huge gap in time in the New Testament books from when Jesus was on the earth to when these things were, were uh, combined, compiled. And that's simply not true. The church was recognizing the Word of God as the Word of God in the New Testament while it was still being written. Paul wrote in Col uh, Colossians 4.16, and when this letter has been read among you, it is have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. I can't say it, Laodiceans, and see also that you have read the letter from Laodicea. What we're seeing there is that the transmission of these epistles that Paul wrote, which all thirteen were accepted very early on in church church history, they were recognized very early on. Um, were being passed around while Paul was still alive. And he knew that. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter recognizes this and he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, not inherent to him, but was given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in there that are too hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. The Apostle Peter recognized the 13 letters that we have in our Bible as scripture from the Apostle Paul. It wasn't a church council or a council convened by a Roman emperor. So um, there's no time on the clock, so I'm just going to keep going, Zane. <laughs>
just just let you know. I don't have my watch on. Um, so how do we know that the Bible that we read today is the same as the original? So that's another challenge. There's a, there's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm not going to mention his name, but he's a professor of religion and of the New Testament in particular. And he does not believe that the New Testament is the Word of God. Every year, he gets a group of freshman students into his classroom, and he proceeds to assault their belief that this is the Word of God. And he says that God didn't take any steps to, pervert, uh, to preserve his word. He tells them all the original copies, which were called autographs, because it would have been the, you know, the copy that they initially wrote. Those are all gone. How can we know? How can we know? They're dust. It's true. They are all gone. We have some records of them surviving into the late second century, but here in the year 2023, that's um, not something that we can compare our current, current Bible against. And he proceeds to tell them that there are more errors in the Bible than there are words. There are 138,000 words in the New Testament. And he comes, there's a few more than that, but I'm rounding. 138,000 words in the New Testament. And he will go on TV shows. He'll go in front of these freshmen, which by the way, one day your kids will be freshmen in, in college or, and may hear some of this. He'll go in there and say, there are more errors than words. 138,000 words, 400,000 errors. He's, he's right. It's a factual statement. What do you say? How do you as a Christian talk to a non-Christian who hears that fact or talk to a, a Christian that... Uh, maybe wobbling a little bit in their faith. How do you talk to him about that? How do you counter that? This is right. The early, one of the earliest complete manuscripts of the Gospel of John we got is um, the manuscript, which is what the Old Testament or New Testament was written on. These were in these manuscripts. Um, uh, Jessa, would you put that P66 manuscript up on the screen? Just kind of show you what's going on and help you defend this. So when you look at this, this is a, a, a picture from P66, which is the Gospel of John, one of the earliest copies of the Gospel of John that we got. Um, it dates early 2nd century, so just after the 1st century where Jesus and the apostles uh, we're still alive. Um, the apostle uh, John discipled 
a man by the name of Polycarp, who discipled a man by the name of uh, Irenus. Um, and Polycarp told his disciple that this was, in fact, from John. He knows that. He knows that firsthand. When you look at this and you go, 138,000 words, 400,000 errors, how's that possible? And you, you look at this writing and, you, you know, they transmitted these by scribes. So a scribe had to take a copy of what you see here and write it out. A couple things I wanted to point out. It's all capital letters. There's no punctuation. So you don't know where the sentence ends just by looking at it. There's also no spaces. Just one, just word, letter after letter after letter after letter, and it keeps going. And the scribes had to copy that and transpose that. The vast majority of those errors, those 400,000 errors as he claims, are spelling mistakes from a scribe who was transferring it from one book to the other. I said God took extraordinary steps to preserve his word. He did. So there's a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus who wrote a history of Rome. There were 33 manuscripts of his book, The History of Rome. The oldest one that we've got is dated from about the 8th or 9th century. He wrote the book in the 1st century. The closest copy we got of it is about 800 years removed from when it was written. 33 copies. That's considered in academic circles a huge measure of veracity or truth that this is what he wrote. You can compare those 33 copies and look at them and go, they're very consistent from one to the next. Um, yeah, this, he wrote this. The Iliad had 13. 13 manuscripts. Anybody care to guess how many the New Testament had? Does anybody know? That didn't go to seminary? About 5,800. 5,800 manuscripts. 33 for Tacitus, 13 for Iliad, 5,800 for the New Testament. And those, we have copies like P66 that were written within a generation of the people that actually wrote the letters, the originals. When we compare those 5,800 across from each other, we notice spelling mistakes. We notice some scribal transcription errors. But there's so many of them, so many of them, that with confidence, we can understand that this is, in fact, the Word of God. So, I uh, go back to our professor friend's argument and it's dishonest or disingenuous at best. Think about that. There's 400,000 
errors spread across 5,800 documents with 138,000 words each. The error rate's actually pretty small, and most of them are spelling errors. The argument doesn't hold water when you examine it under historical fact. And I, I just want to um, show you something. We can understand without any change to doctrine or meaning what the original text was, even though there's some spelling errors or some slight scribal errors. Jesse, would you put the next slide up? So I'm going to counter an atheist with an atheist. How many errors do you think are in this screen? Pretty much, yeah. What does it say? Can anybody actually read it? Yes. Intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. So something with far more spelling mistakes than errors in it, you guys can read and pick up the meaning from the original quote with no problem. So we have one atheist quote disavowing another's. Um, you, can, you can take that down. Thank you. So I, I, we're going to shift gears a little bit here and um, kind of go through our next two points. I promise they're a little bit shorter than point one. Um, but uh, it, what I want you to take away from, from point one is that we can absolutely have confidence that these 66 books in this Bible are, in fact, the Word of God. When we say the word canon, we mean standard. When we talked about having the Bible as central in our lives, it is the standard by which we need to live our lives and live out our faith. And that's where we're shifting for the next, the next couple topics. So the, my next point is accepting God's word as a standard for faith. And this point is all about God using his word to bring about salvation. Remember, we talked about general and special revelation, that general revelation shows us that there is a God through his creation and through ourselves who are made in his image. Special revelation shows humanity the great peril that we're in and the great salvation that God has provided. God's word says in, in 2 Timothy 3.15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10.17 says, so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. That's right. John 20, 31, I like John because John just tells you why he's writing. He just puts it out there for you. John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. God gave us the scripture as the standard for faith. And that faith, that standard for faith is Christ which is the message of Scripture as a whole. When we, saw, when we talked about orthodoxy and the whole Bible connecting, the whole Bible from front to back 
points to Christ. And it points to the fact that we have a problem. And that problem is God made us. He made us good. And we sinned. And because of our sin, we face eternal separation from him. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God has taken the effort to reach into human history and to show us who he is, who we are, and his great plan of salvation. So, he gives us the Bible as the standard for faith, of what it means to believe in him and how we can be saved. He also gives it as the standard for life. And I'll shorten this up a little bit, recognizing the time. So you guys have probably been wondering what this is, right? Tim hasn't taken his eyes off. He's just been been looking straight. I promise you, it is not some really bad knockoff of the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) Not that at all. So my family, many of you know, my family and I, we went on a a cross-country trip in June, and we went to 11 national parks and and monuments and some other places. And this was the chuck box that we as a family made before we went because we were camping and we didn't want to eat fast food the whole trip. We wanted to make some food. So this is a chuck box. We determined that the uh, totes that we had all of our kitchen stuff in were just not going to work in the car. And this looked fun. So we decided to make this. So I went on the internet and I found a bunch of plans. And, you know, without considering much anything other than, you know, I kind of like the look of that one. I don't like the look of that one. I'm going to pick that one. So I picked it. I picked the plan. Didn't check it for fit for use or anything else. It was just kind of like the look of it. Got the material list from the plan, went to Lowe's, bought a bunch of wood, bought a bunch of supplies, get it down in the basement and start working on it, cut a bunch of wood, decided that, hey, I don't want to use a a four foot by eight foot piece of plywood and use their cut list. I'm going to use two foot by four foot pieces so that I can... uh, keep those in the car easier and make my own cut list, which I did. So I started deviating from the plan quickly. And I also started, uh, as we, we looked at it, we cut one piece of wood and we quickly realized, I chose the wrong plan. Our stove will not fit in there. I did not measure or have any standard other than I like the look of this. And if you were to look at this and look at the plan from the outside, looks totally the same. You wouldn't really be able to tell that it's a couple inches wider. So I started modifying the plan on my own on the side. Anybody guess how many extra pieces of plywood I ended up buying and scrapping? At least three, and it's birch, so it's a, it was a little costly. Um, when you open it up, it looks nothing like the one in the plan. 
because we quickly realized that that plan didn't fit our stuff. So we started making modifications, and I won't go through all the modifications, but I will say this, because I didn't follow the plan, first of all, I didn't pick the right plan, I didn't discern what the best plan was, because I didn't do that, and I started making modifications. When I started fitting the shelves and all of that together, I started getting gaps and holes. So this piece of plywood didn't push up next to that, didn't do a good enough job checking uh, the plywood either to make sure that it was, uh, you know, it was as straight as it needed to be. So I had some gaps and so I've got some wood filler in here. And you probably don't notice it, but I know it's there and I know that it's gonna get stress tested through the years. Humidity and temperature are gonna pull and that, those gaps that I filled, they're going to be exposed. And that is the result of me not following the plan, not having a good standard by which to make it. Now, we still like it, but that's not the point. The point is, God has given us a standard for life. We can't make it up as we go. We can't modify it on the fly. It's his word. Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 3, through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 1 Peter 1 through 3 says, His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, which we get from Scripture, who called us to his own glory and excellence. God gave us a plan. He gave us a standard by which to measure our lives. Our challenge is to receive it, and to accept it, just like our early church fathers did so many years ago. When Joe sang, uh, taste, or read from Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good, he had no idea that that was in the sermon towards the end. Um, but I, I want to leave you with this quote. One of the folks that I listened to uh, while I was preparing for this was a, a, a preacher by the name of Barry Cooper. And he said, when you see the sun, you know it's bright. When you taste honey, you know it's sweet. When you see Jesus Christ in scripture, you know he is Lord. And when you put God's word into practice, you know it's for real. If you have questions that this is the word of God, follow it, obey it. It is sufficient and it will change you through the Holy Spirit. Um, just a, a couple of things here and then we'll pray. I mentioned earlier about this professor that, uh, don't worry, I'm not going through all those. I know it's close to lunch. I mentioned that professor who challenges college students. And uh, 
a Christian apologist. He's actually uh, president of a seminary in North Carolina in Chapel Hill, Reformed Theological Seminary, I think is its name, uh, was a freshman in that gentleman's class. And his daughter was going to UNC Chapel Hill. And he knew the things that had assaulted his faith were going to assault hers. And so he wrote this book called Surviving Religion 101. This is not really a book. It is a collection of short letters to his daughter on topics of the faith. You read each one, it says, Dear Emma. That's what it starts with, Dear Emma. And if you have uh, a, a, a kid that's close to going to college, uh, I would recommend, highly recommend this book uh, to help them understand and deal with the things that are going to come across them. Uh, if you're looking for a short kind of read on, can I really trust the Bible? Uh, Barry Cooper was that quote that I just read. It came from this book. It's a short, short little book for four questions. And then this book right here, if you're a visual person, uh, How We Got the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones. Excellent resource, goes through the history of the Bible, and it deals with a lot of the topics that we uh, talked about today. And if you're more academic, you can check those out after the service. But um, why don't I close our time in prayer? Father God, Lord, again, we thank you for being a God who would consider us at all. Lord, who would reveal yourself to us And Lord, I can't begin to comprehend your glory. I can't praise you to the level that you deserve. But because of your word, I am able to taste and see that you are good. I am able to worship you because of the th things that you've done, because of who you are, because of who you've told us you are. And we know that you are trustworthy and your word is trustworthy. And so, Lord, we, we leave here today thanking and praising you for a God who makes himself known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.